Um, before we get started, if I could find my, in my various readings this week, I ran across this old Puritan prayer that just seems to uh, be a good start for us this morning. So I'm going to use this prayer to open us this morning. Compassionate Lord, your mercies have brought us to the dawn of another day. Vain will, it be, vain will be its gift unless we grow in grace, increase in knowledge, ripen for spiritual harvest. Let us this day know you as you are, love you supremely, serve you wholly, admire you fully. Through grace, let our will respond to you, knowing that power to obey is not in us, but that your free love alone enables us to serve you. Here, then, is an empty heart. Overflow it with your choicest gifts. Here is our blind understanding. Chase away its mists of ignorance. O ever watchful shepherd, lead, guide, tend us this day. Without your restraining rod, we err and stray. Hedge up our path, lest we wander into unwholesome pleasure and drink its poisonous streams. Direct our feet, that we be not entangled in Satan's secret snares, nor fall into his hidden traps. Defend us from assailing foes, from evil circumstances, from ourselves. Our adversaries are part and parcel of our very nature. They cling to us as our very skin. We cannot escape their contact. In our rising up and sitting down, they barnacle us. They entice with constant baits. Our enemy is within the citadel. Come with almighty power and cast him out. Pierce him to death and abolish in us every particle of carnal life this day. Attune our hearts to hear your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know. It seems like they thought a little more deeply. Um, maybe it was lack of social media. I'm not sure. Anyway, I, I always find those comforting and helpful. So here we are back for round two of this weird, unusual roundtable introduction to Revelation. Today is the lightning round. Uh, this will be followed by Final Jeopardy. So you're going to want to stay tuned. Now, I know that we, we uh, broadcast a lot of information out last week. Well, we, we shot a lot of information out to you, and I know that because many of you said you shot a lot of information out at us today, um, and it's almost too much information. Um, so to make sure we're all on the same page, we're going to repeat today what we did last week. Only more slowly. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Just as by way of reminder, you know, we, are, we do stream this service as a byproduct of COVID, whatever. Um, but it also records to our, our YouTube channel. So if you want to go back and watch, uh, it's Grace Fellowship, Prosser, um, and all the sermons will be on there if you want to go back and revisit. Um, but we're moving on today. Today we're going to look at uh, uh, an overview of the use of numbers and symbols in the book of Revelation. So again, our goal is to help establish a framework for how we're going to approach the book. Um, and it, Again, it will seem like a fair amount of information, um, and it's obviously kind of taken out of context, but we're going to try to provide some context as we go. Um, but we think these last two weeks will be more helpful to you as we get into the text and you see the application of it. Um, so most of you, I think, have already received or have seen the handout that we have, which is an overview of the, the four primary um, methods of interpretation for the book. Um, you can keep that in your Bible for later reference. And by next Sunday, I think we'll have a lot of today's information, uh, kind of a, a glossary of numbers and symbols. We'll have that available for you also. So as we go through, you'll have a handy reference for those things. Um, so we're going to start with just a, a very, very brief recap, starting with our assumptions on how we're going to approach this book. 
Um, this is kind of our roadmap for how we're going to go through the book of Revelation. And the first is that rather than let our, our own approach or, or our preconceived ideas of how this book should be read, rather than let that dictate our understanding, we're going to try to let the text dictate our understanding. Um, even if that means we, we make adjustments to what we have thought prior to now. Um, and we feel like the best way to interpret Scripture is with other Scripture. So that will be a constant theme as we go through. Um, I think we're also going to see that this, this book reinforces the idea that God has always had a plan in mind for his creation. Uh, he's chosen to give us some insight into this plan, perhaps not as much as we would like, but he does give us some insight. Um, and we believe that, like the rest of Scripture, the book of Revelation was revealed to John. It was given and recorded for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, which means that there's something here for us today. It was applicable for the first century church. It's applicable for us, for every church in between, and for ages to come until Jesus comes back, which we're thinking is next week sometime. Um, Tuesday is what we've narrowed it down to. So Revelation is not just a book about the beginning and end of history. It's kind of a record of history of, of God and man. Um, so even though you now have this handout, just another quick look at, at the, the, the primary ways that people have found to interpret this book. And with each, within each of those four primary methods, there are many various levels and variations within that. Um, and I just want to bring this up because I, I want to issue a caution for us all that I don't think any of us should take too dogmatic a position in how we understand this book. The fact that there are four primary methods uh, to understand it and many, many secondary ways to understand it, that alone suggests it's not quite as clear as some make it out to be. <clears throat> so our recommendation is, as we go through, you, we try to keep our, our opinions, our ideas, in kind of an open-handed way. It, it's, it's important to have an understanding. We, we can believe what we want to believe, or derive what we can derive from it. But it should never become a closed-handed item that we become so dogmatic about it that it becomes divisive. Um, if you're committed to this, any of those ideas, if you're committed to that idea too strongly, and then it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to work out, will that affect your faith? If you've decided, for example, um, that you're part of the premillennial, pre-trib rapture group, and I use that one because that's one of the more common understandings among Christians today, if you're committed to that idea, and then it turns out that your timeline wasn't quite right, is that going to affect your faith? Is your faith going to be shaken? Is your understanding of the Word of God going to be shaken because you didn't quite understand it right? Um, so our faith and our trust ought to be in the things that we can know for sure, uh, and not so much in the things that require some speculation. Um, open to different interpretations. And, and, and the one thing we know for sure from this book is that Jesus is going to come back. So until then, this is fun and it's interesting, and we would argue it's necessary for us to approach this book uh, for teaching, for correction, for training, and for understanding, and to discern as much as we can discern. So today we're going to start off with a review of the use of numbers and their scripturally derived meanings and how they work in conjunction with certain symbols throughout the book. Um, and again, by next week, we'll have this in some kind of a quick, handy takeout thing for you, take-home thing for you to look at. So Randy and Al are going to start this portion of the discussion. So do them all? Go through them all. Go through them all. Okay. 
Sounds good. Um, first of all, I want to say something about numbers that the, the associations we make with numbers, particularly in something like Revelation, where they get their symbolic value is not in themselves, but it's in what they're associated with. People, events, metaphors, um, all kinds of things like that. And then they can stand in for those different things. So I'm just going to go through and this list, hit on a couple of the roots for where this metaphor or number or symbol comes from, what it meaning comes from, and then Al gets to do the lightning round part. This is the Jeopardy part, maybe. I don't know. But it's uh, me and Jeopardy. That, uh, he's going to talk about where we see this in Revelation. So, start out with two, and the idea of unity. Now you two, unity, seems like one would be a better unity number, but two is, uni- is an idea, of, there is an idea of unity that's important in the Old Testament, and it starts clear back in Genesis. You remember back to our Genesis study, that the, we have things like the sun and the moon, when they're created, unite to allow the measure of time. They work in unity in that sense. I think probably the easiest one, or the one that most of us think of right away, if we're married, is that uh, the man and the woman who shall become one flesh and that unity that is formed there. So if you think of that, number two, when, you see, when we see that, one of the things it's going to mean is unity. And in Revelation, you got any? Uh, a couple. Uh, one that's really, that really comes out clearly is in chapter 11, uh, verses 3 through 5, where it says that, uh, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, there's the two, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. So here we have a number of twos kind of put together. If you think about it, Scripture requires that there be two witnesses to confirm testimony. Back from the book of Deuteronomy, the principle is laid out that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So the two witnesses here really end up symbolizing uh, all of God's people, his saints, united together. So then wearing the sackcloth, it says the sackcloth of repentance, to symbolize their, their message, they actually are symbolizing uh, or prophesying. They're going to continue to preach the gospel even while the holy city is being trampled. So the two witnesses are models for all the saints to imitate Namely, that all of God's people must be unified and faithful to Jesus, even in the face of persecution. And also, the rest of this, the, the, talking about the lampstands and the olive trees, harkens back to the prophet Zechariah, which is one of those background individuals that John uses a lot, especially the vision in Zechariah chapter 4. Because there, the two, anoint, the two olive trees symbolize two anointed ones. <coughs> namely a, a royal leader, a king, to rebuild God's temple, and also then a high priest to lead the worship in it. They're united together, two different individuals, but the two olive trees there are symbolized of those individuals. So the witnesses in chapter 11 in Revelation aptly represent all those whom the Lamb has redeemed to serve as priests and to rule as kings. The olive trees, of course, provide the oil for the lampstands because the two lampstands represent the faithful church and it's witness to a world that's hostile. The seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 contain only two that aren't criticized for capitulating to their culture. And remember, the churches there are identified as lampstands. So 
These end up serving as symbols of faithful, united witness until Jesus returns. We had a little bit there, yeah. (laughs) So three is one that we're probably more familiar with, the idea of perfection or completeness. Uh, The Christian worldview, I think we would immediately associate this with the Trinity, and often three is the number of God. But three can also mean a completeness in other things, like in creation. Uh, in Deuteronomy 5, 8, where in the, in the commandments, where it says, do not make yourself a carved image or likeness, it says that it can't be anything from the heaven above, from the earth beneath, or from the water under the earth. So you've got all the three components that bring creation together. Uh, in Ezekiel's vision, we've talked about Ezekiel and Zechariah and Daniel and other apocalyptic portions of the Old Testament that will come into this a lot. In his uh, vision of the, of the restoration of Israel, the new city, uh, the city is in a square, has four walls, it has uh, three gates in each wall. And uh, one gate, as you go around it, for all the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is where these numbers kind of come in here. Uh, and I know there's a great example of a three in Revelation. There's a couple. A couple of them. Yeah. One of them, which is ties up what you're talking about with the trinities in verses 4 and 5. The word three isn't used, but he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. There's the Father. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven being, we're going to look a little more clear, clearly, is being complete. This is the Holy Spirit. Uh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So here's a clear statement of the trinity right off the bat. Uh, God is one, but he exists as three persons. So he's, he is the personification of perfection and completeness, and he needs nothing outside of himself. But in chapter 4, we get another reference where it says in chapter 4, verse 8, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So languages like Greek and Hebrew uh, repeat the same word over three times to indicate something that's superlative, that it's the highest possible state it can be. It's complete. So we say, you know, something is the best. The Greek would say something is good, good, good. So God holy stated here three times means that God is the standard of holiness. He is the definer of holy because that's part of his intrinsic nature. And the same basic symbol, but with the opposite meaning, comes into play in chapter 8 in Revelation, uh, in, at the end of the fourth trumpet judgment. He says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So there's a threefold repetition of damnation, which is going to draw attention really to how destructive those final three judgments are going to be. It's the worst you can imagine. Four, usually associated with creation. The idea is worldwide. It has to do with the things of the earth, primarily the things of creation. Uh, The expanse of the earth can be seen in expressions in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 11, the four corners of the earth. That's used in other places as well. Uh, The four winds in Ezekiel. Uh, there's you have the four rivers flowing out of Eden that all picture the same kind of thing. Uh, you also see it in predictions of judgment at times. 
And in Jeremiah 15, the Lord uh, tells Jeremiah that he will appoint four kinds of destroyers to, uh, for his punishment for his rebellious people. Uh, in Zechariah, we have the, the four horns and the four craftsmen of Zechariah, Zechariah's vision. And, and uh, he also, Zechariah has four chariots that get involved in all this. So this idea of four becomes an important thing, but I think the key to it is to realize that it's, it's earthly and it's worldwide, but it's also creation-wide in that sense. And one example in the book of Revelation is at the end of chapter 6, in the beginning of chapter 7, uh, where it says, And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So he repeats the number four there uh, to stress that the judgment that's coming on earth is not going to take place until there's another angel that comes and marks the head of God's servants as his property with his seal on their forehead. He's going to hold things back until that occurs. No harm is going to come to anything worldwide, earth, sea, trees, anything in the whole world until after God's servants are sealed and protected. So the Bible contains a lot of, like uh, Randy mentioned here, uh, groups of four that are created to represent parts of creation. Uh, so the one another example that I didn't uh, that we're going to see over and over again is the four living creatures that surround the throne of God. They take the lead in executing judgment, especially in the sealed judgments, and they represent the fact that God has full knowledge of all that happens on the earth, and that He acts with justice, regardless of how it might seem to individuals that are actually experiencing it. And of course, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's true. Right? There's another four in there. That's too obvious. Too obvious? Yeah. Well, that's why I took it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could be more obscure. Leave the deep things to you. That's right. <laughs> You're right. Okay, so. I thought it was two. <laughs> <laughs> so the number six, uh, humanity often is associated with humanity. Uh, one of the key ideas is it's short of perfection, because we'll see when we get to seven after this. But the, uh, the, Old, the key Old Testament reference to this has to do with the creation of humankind on, this, on the sixth day. That's where this, a lot of this really comes from. But there's a lot of other elements of six that show you in the Old Testament as well that have to do with the, the rhythm of human life and the work of human life. So six days you labor, and then on the seventh you don't. You do all your work on those six days. A Hebrew slave has to be freed after six years of doing the work he needs to do. Uh, the land is supposed to be worked for six years and then left fallow on the seventh. So this idea of six comes in a lot to the human activity in particular. And there is one really important six, I think, in Revelation, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's caused a bit of consternation for sure. We're going to start with Revelation uh, 4 8. We looked at that before. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That uh, harks back to uh, 
Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 with the seraphim having their six wings. Uh, so here we have four living creatures, each with six wings, symbolizing that they're, they're very powerful, but not as powerful as God himself. They're still creatures. So they go, go, don't get to seven, they step at six. Because six is close to perfection, but it's not quite there. Mankind was created on the sixth day as the pinnacle of creation, but he was not God. God ruled creation on the seventh day, indicating that he was the king, the king over all creation. In Revelation 13, a somewhat familiar verse, uh, also it, which is the beast, kind of a symbol of world government, uh, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This really is the satanic counterfeit to God sealing his people back in chapter 7. This is Satan's seal. Uh, and there's a whole lot of theories about the meaning of this 666. Uh, but, a, but a basic meaning, putting all the identification with names and people to one side, it's a combination of the number 6 with the number 3. So the basic meaning really becomes 6 being signifying humanity and 3 signifying perfection. Becomes then a being who is completely human, 6 taken 3 times, but who falls short of God, who would be 777, the superlative and the best. And you can fill in, fill in the details about who might, might be, like every generation since the time this book was written. <laughs> but that's the basic meaning. It's composed of a superlative of mankind, the three sixes, but who falls short of God, who would be three sevens. Term I came across for that I thought was pretty good was a perfect incomplete. <laughs> yeah. This is a book of mystery, right? Yeah. Okay, seven completeness or fullness. Another one. Uh, one commentator I, I have said seven is an has an eminent place among sacred numbers and in the scriptures, and we certainly see that as you go through the scripture. But it's always used in ways that are symbolic of fullness and purity, both. Uh, a couple of examples of that from the Old Testament in Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So you have that idea there, that completeness and that purification. In Isaiah 30, uh, Isaiah writes in one of his visions here, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, and the light of the seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. And so this idea of seven, you know, comes into those kinds of uh, uh, meanings. Uh, you can have some negative side to this as well, but it, again, to get the idea of fullness, uh, jumping ahead to the uh, uh, New Testament, uh, Mary Magdalene is possessed by seven demons. You know, we don't have to necessarily say, okay, count off your names as I call them for the demons, but the, uh, the, it just means it's complete. It was a complete thing. So this is very similar. In Revelation, we got a few of those as well. Yeah, it jumps right in at the beginning, one I already looked at, which is that uh, when John writes the seven churches, he says, Grace to you at peace from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. 
There's, there's an indication of spiritual fullness, of completeness, and it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So when you see seven spirits, you're going to find that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, then later on in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's kind of nice because he actually explains the symbol this time. <laughs> One of the few times it actually happens. When you look at the picture of the, of the Son of Man, he's a, a being who radiates light and heat, and he with eyes like, uh, like flames, feet like bronze, heated to where it actually glows, uh, face blazing like a summer sun. And his appearance is reflected then in the seven stars that he holds and the seven lampstands that surround him. So the lampstands actually are a reflection of Israel's ancient sanctuary. If you remember, the, in the holy place stood a golden lampstand with, with seven actual uh, lights, seven actual uh, torches, if you will who gave, gave light to the priests who would perform their, their duties in this otherwise dark facility. Uh, <clears throat> so the lampstands here, then he says, symbolize the churches on earth scattered across Asia Minor and, of course, and beyond. And Jesus, the Holy One of God, is present among them, and he knows their situation more truly than they do. He knows our situation more truly than we do. So seeing the churches as golden lampstands, also points to their responsibility, once again, to reflect the light of God's heavenly court into the present darkness that's on earth. So lampstands call the churches then to reflect the Spirit's presence on earth in their communities. And the letters to the churches show what that looks like. So 10, we got 10 and, okay, we don't have 10 and actually 5, half a 10 comes into this as well as a little bit, but ten mostly, uh, has its roots back to the uh, ten patriarchs before the great flood, uh, the ten plagues on Egypt, the ten commandments, um, when uh, Boaz went to assemble the elders to talk about Ruth, he had to have ten of them for the quorum, and even uh, throughout history, it took ten Jewish males to required to form a synagogue. So this idea of ten has this, you know, wholeness or complete. All, everyone that needs to be there is there. And uh, uh, Ecclesi- a teacher in Ecclesiastes says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So you have uses like that as well. Uh, kind of the, the half thing, the, the five, I just mentioned real quick because we don't really see much of it in Revelation. Uh, the whole number being ten, half of that being just you know, not quite there. And uh, you see this in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins with their lamps. Ten of them had enough oil and five of them, you know, half of them had oil and half of them didn't. So you see a shortage of things. So often ten works in conjunction with five in the scripture. Hmm. Well, this is kind of a fun one because there's three direct references that you're probably all familiar with. Uh, In Revelation 12, 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a, red, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or crowns. Then next chapter, Revelation 13, starts out with, 
And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Then I go to chapter 17, verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. This also picks up from Daniel's vision, where he saw ten kings. Now the aurochs, or the wild ox, or if you're a good King James version person, the unicorn, <laughs> uh, was, a, was a very fearsome, short-tempered animal, about six feet tall, with huge horns similar to but dwarfing those of a longhorn bull today. <coughs> and these animals lived in the wild. They were scary. Uh, they managed to get hunted into extinction, but they're still around up until the 1600s. But because of these these uh, very strong, unpredictable uh, animals, horns in the Bible then became a symbol of power. So altars at the Jewish temple, remember, had horns at the corners, which also was a reminder that God was much more powerful than the sacrifices. The sacrifices were not God. God was God, and he was powerful, and the horns there were to remind them. Of course, that was also the place where people went for refuge if they were being pursued. Sometimes this didn't help. Um, now the, the dragon is shown in symbols indicating his cunning, seven heads, great power, ten horns, and authority to influence others, the seven crowns. So his great powers seem infinite to humans, unconquerable, but they're counterfeit. And each of these symbolic creatures dragon, beast, harlot, or prostitute, use ten to describe what appears to be great power, complete power, but we all know, and God points out, it's not as great as they think it is. God still has control of the situation, and he's only going to allow things to go that way for so long. So the final one up there is, uh, actually, no, we got twelve, excuse me, got one more. <coughs> Before we get to the last one, 12, completed order or the people of God is most of what you have there. That's an easy one for us to think of, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Um, when you, there's, uh, you can have multiples of that as well, which you begin to see, the idea of 24 thrones, uh, 144,000. All these things contribute to 12s and multiples of 12s as the idea of a completed order. Everybody that needs to be there is there. And it's the people of God usually that are associated with this this number twelve. Well, one of, one of uh, our favorite sections is getting to chapter twenty one and twenty two. <laughs> um, in twenty one nine through fourteen, we have this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me saying, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb." And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and the gates of the names on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12 repeated over and over again. And here it's just it's depicting the, the people of God, depicting his, his bride. And it's depicted here as a great city with beauty that John can't even really describe. 
and the city is huge. I mean, it's 1,400 miles on a side. Uh, that's kind of indication of protection, security. He's trying to describe something he really can't describe because Jasper, if you guys are rock collectors, is not clear like crystal. <laughs> but he's having a hard time trying to figure out somebody to describe the beauty that he's seeing. Uh, and in trying to describe the beauty of the Bride of Christ, which is the church composed of believers throughout all of created history, throughout all of creation. So the previous conflicts in the book of Revelation now, they've come to an end finally. And we finally see where our God is taking us. The church is now complete in this vision. And all the saints of the Old Testament and all the saints of the New Testament are all here. It's complete. The New Jerusalem is a cube, like the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it can't be entered by evil. It's too, the walls are too thick, the walls are too high, it's too big. Uh, it's the, the, the gates are guarded even though it's not really necessary. Uh, it can't be entered by evil, it's eternally pure. And the testimony of the twelve apostles preserved as the faithful followers of Jesus... They provide the sure foundation. And the gates picture the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is where you're going to have some fun. Because it's not the 12 tribes of Israel that are listed in the book in the Old Testament. This is the 12 tribes of Israel listed in Daniel chapter or in Revelation chapter 7. They don't match. <laughs> so there's your first mystery. Uh, I think he's talking here though about the listing of uh, tribes in the old of the Jewish tribes in chapter 7. The one, the picture that the one that pictures true believers, and that Israel is the true Israel. And the repetition of twelve here just shows that history is now complete, and the New Test, New Jerusalem, was God's goal from the beginning of time, and now we get to experience it. Brings us to a thousand, which is a big number, uh, and it was used primarily that way. And I mentioned in the uh, in the Old Testament, I. I talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about interpretations of Revelation. I'm going to give you some examples from the Old Testament of, of how we see a thousand used. It's just representative or standing in for a large number of some kind. Uh, the first one is from Job. If one wished to contend with him, would not answer him once in a thousand times. So, does that mean exactly a thousand times? Does that mean thousand and one? You're going to get a word in edgewise with God? Uh, no, uh, it just, it's a picture of a big number. It's just not going to happen. Uh, the same thing is true where in Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the, the God says, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, that doesn't mean hill 1001 belongs to somebody else, the cattle on it. That means God has it all. It's a picture of this large number. Uh, Psalm 90, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. Does that mean a thousand years in a day? We can make equivalents and draw a calendar out here of some kind? No, in fact, Peter picks up on that in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, where he's talking about a similar idea. That people who are th- saying, complaining, where's it going to return? It's not happening. It's not gonna, it's not gonna, it doesn't seem to be happening. Where's the return of the Lord? And, and Peter argues that you're being impatient. You know, don't you realize that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord? So I think that it's important when we look at this, we're just really looking at the thousand and multiples of that are really just big numbers. We're trying to get across the idea of a really, really big number. And of course, the obvious reference in the Revelation is in chapter 20. Uh, it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So one of the key things I think which is going to be difficult for a lot of us is to actually put aside your understanding of how and when the millennium, the thousand years, will take place. That's one of the only things to hold with an open hand. Because considering its other uses, the number 1,000 basically signifies a very large number. It can literally mean a thousand years of 365 days each, or symbolically represent a large, indeterminate number, as I think it does here. And it certainly does in other references, like chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, which is millions and millions, literally, and thousands and thousands. That's not an actual head count of the angels. That just means there's a whole lot of them, more than you can count. Or in chapter 9, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. You know, did he count dog tags? It's a huge number, a number that we couldn't imagine. And that's what he's trying to get across. So, and as always, it's the context within Revelation and in the Bible outside of Revelation that's going to help us when we come to it to understand whether 1,000 is something you take literally or it's pointing to something even greater than that. So you can see that, as we've said already, uh, Revelation is drenched, dripping, overflowing in symbolism. Uh, And so we need to make sure we're aware of that as we go through. This also shows there's such a strong continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that should help our understanding as well. Uh, And there are just a couple more significant symbols that we want to point to uh, before we move on. The first one, um, they're individuals kind of, but they actually kind of work as a group, and it's fairly significant. These characters that show up in this drama over and over, um, but they also help paint a larger picture. Uh, And those are the ideas of the dragon. Um, The the dragon is associated with Satan. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 9 says the dragon is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So that solves that mystery for us. We know who that is. And his primary purpose has been to oppose God, to thwart or derail any any plan that God has. Um, And we know from Scripture that Satan obviously started this nefarious work in the garden, and he's continued this effort throughout time. Um, And has had a fair amount of success in leading men away from God. But his end will come if you've read ahead to the end of the story. Uh, There's another specific mention uh, of the beast from the sea in chapter 13, verse 1. And we'll see that this character is really kind of the antithesis, um, the cheap counterfeit of Jesus. Um, And that's actually made clear throughout the text as well. There's even a mention of this beast having received a fatal wound from which he recovers, not unlike Jesus' death and resurrection. So there's another point of contact there. So his purpose is to mimic Christ. It's to lead others away from the worship of the true God and move into worship of the beast, to be an alternative to Christ. Uh, 
Um, and this is done largely through the influence uh, of power that is wielded through state or government organizations, other groups. Um, we've seen many examples of this throughout history. Evil empires throughout history, um, and they, they wreak horrible damage uh, around the world. Um, but it also doesn't have to be evil. It doesn't have to mean wholesale slaughter or genocide. Um, this is becoming actually easier for us to understand in the West. I think for a long time we thought, well, this dragon, this beast is going to be this horrible creature we can't begin to understand. But when you think about it in terms of government influence or control, what we have gone through the last year or two, um, where we see government throw out strong rules, and if we don't comply, it's going to affect our livelihood, it's going to affect our well-being. Now, I'm not saying that our government is the Antichrist, but we can begin to see how this is a possibility in the future. It may not seem evil on the surface, but the consequences of it can be significant. Um, the next character you see is the beast from the earth, um, also referred to as the false prophet in chapter 13, verse 11. Um, we'll see that it's the job of the false prophet to lead people away from the worship of God, the worship of Jesus also, but the primary way they work is going to be through uh, false religions, through philosophies, through false teachers. Um, and we'll see this become more and more powerful as the day grows near. You'll remember, we just went through uh, five of, of Paul's letters to the churches, and every letter he talked about, beware of false teachers. It was significant then, it is significant for us now. We cannot assume that the term Christian, when it's used in the culture, means of or pertaining to Christ. We have to be aware of what's being taught which is why we, on occasion, point out false teachers by name. Joel Osteen, for example. This is, why, this is why it's important for us to know. It's important for us to understand what's happening here. Uh, it's why the Bereans were acknowledged, were, were commended for their willingness to dig into Scripture and study it for themselves. Don't just listen to every teacher that comes along. They never checked on Paul, right. Um, so if you haven't made this, this bigger connection yet, here, here's what we want to point out, and this is really interesting. The most effective way uh, for Satan to distract many and to lead multitudes away from God is to mimic God. So where the Bible obviously teaches the Holy Trinity, there's God the Father, God the, God the Son, God the Spirit. Satan has crafted this unholy trinity to, to mimic, to be the counterfeit to lead people away from God. We were created to worship. So Satan uses those other influences to lead people into false worship of false gods or false religions to promote spirituality that seems like religion, but it's not. Um, he promotes false prophets and, and feel-goodism, emotionalism, all, the, all these things that can be used uh, in opposite to God's word. This is the battle that we face. Uh, a few more that we need to consider uh, when we see John's vision. Um, but in my opinion, what you see here, this idea of good versus evil, of God versus Satan, this is the best explanation for the world as we live as we see it. This makes the most sense for how the world functions. God is still in his place. Satan is still trying to undo what he's doing. Um, and there are a couple of more for us to consider as we go. Uh, I think, Randy, you got one. Yeah, I've got just to, to contrast <clears throat> to, we've already talked a bit about the beast from the sea in chapter 13 with its uh, <clears throat> uh, seven heads and blasphemous names on those heads and appears to have a mortal wound and the ten horns with the diadems. And really what this summarizes into, as, as Al suggested, is 
It's a picture that symbolizes governmental, social, and economic power. And it's a power that's given over to a perfection in blasphemy. And uh, seven heads with blasphemous names. And what's interesting, I think, is to contrast that then with the Lamb in, in chapter 5. And that's a vision of heaven that's very important there. It's a vision about redemption. Uh, the Lamb, they, you know, they were, the, I started to, I'm just to read a little bit from chapter 5 here. And I saw in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a powerful angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And if we jump ahead to, uh, I was going to mention to you that you need to listen to me read this because the blessing comes from hearing the words of this prophecy (laughs) being read. That's chapter 1, verse 3. Anyway, the, uh, okay, so... Uh, chapter six, uh, verse six, then says, "And I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as though slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent in all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And that scroll, breaking that seal, that scrolls executes the rest of the what happens." in the chapters following. But the contrast is, I think this one starts out, the Lamb's picture starts out with a question. Who is worthy to execute judgment? And the answer then becomes this sacrificed lamb. That there's a there's an allusion here to the Passover. There's uh, elements of Isaiah 53 that can be found in this picture. First Peter talked about our ransom with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb uh, without blemish or spot. The emphasis is on God accomplishes his means by sacrifice. That's an important part of this. And the seven horns and the seven eyes and the seven spirits of God, these are all symbols of then seven members perfection. So seven horns, symbols of power. Here we have not just power, but all power. Here we have omnipotence. And the seven eyes... We have the seven spirits of God going into all the earth. That was also that's also found in Zechariah. Uh, here we have all knowing, all seeing. Nothing gets by him. And so I think it's interesting that the the picture then uh, it symbolizes of the other beast in thirteen is a is a you know has all the earthly authority, all the earthly resources attached to it for its evil purposes, but its power comes up short because it's earthly and it's short of the perfect power that the lamb has and but the seven horns you know, symbolizing omnipotence and I think it's interesting that where the lamb image starts with a question who is worthy the beast image ends with a question who can stand against the beast and you know what that's already been answered You got one? Nope. All right. <clears throat> so to, to uh, kind of tie a bow on this, wrap this up so far, keep in mind as we go through that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof. We're going to learn some things from this. Um, there are lessons for us to learn, even in what we've covered so far. Um, and this book fits neatly into how we've looked at the last couple of letters into our discussions of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Uh, Pulling back the curtain on the book of Revelation helps us understand the true nature of the battle. 
This is a spiritual battle at its core. We've got roles to play, we've got our jobs to do, but this is a spiritual battle. So the events that are pictured here throughout the book, and whatever timeline or whatever order we ascribe to them, um, these paint a picture of a God who is the most high, most sovereign, most powerful ruler, who also happens to love us, who is willing to protect us from the enemy. He has an entire eternity planned and prepared for us in advance. And we can find comfort in that. We are to find comfort in that, even in hard times. Whatever our tribulation is going to look like, we can find comfort in that. But this also shows us who the enemy is, who the true enemy is, the, the, the devil, the dragon, Satan. Um, and we get to see how he works through oppressive governments, through uh, organizations, through religious and philosophical deceptions, uh, through lust, uh, affluence, social media, and the like. Um, these are active ways that, that he seeks to influence and, and, and uh, move us away from God. It's, it's all the pleasures of the world, which can become so easily, uh, we can learn to covet and idolize. Not that we can't enjoy them, we just have to be careful about how we do that. Which leads us into the orthopraxy section. How do we live with this information? Um, well, first and foremost, we need to be prepared to suffer for the cause of Christ. Um, we're already seeing that a little bit in this country. We're going to see more as time goes on, whether that's going to be a lot or a little, whether we're going to be saved from the worst of it or not. We're going to face some kind of trial and persecution, but we are called to persevere and to endure. We are called to keep our eyes fixed on the Lamb. And so we need to maintain our purity uh, in this world. That is, that is we're, we're, we're to stay devoted to the one true king. We're not to be swayed into false worship. We're not supposed to become too married to the things of the world, but we keep our eyes fixed on the eternity before us. Um, to use a phrase we heard a lot the last year, we are called to walk worthy of our calling and to maintain that, regardless of our circumstance. Uh, and we are called to remain faithful witnesses for Christ until he comes or until we go. Um, and finally, I'm going to close on this. We used this last week, but these, again, are things we can all agree on. Wherever you land on those four interpretations or wherever you land on timelines or whatever, here are things we can all agree on that Jesus is going to return. He is going to come back. There is going to be judgment for believers and unbelievers alike. We believe that believers are going to fare a little better than unbelievers. We think it's going to go better for us. We're, there are going to be blessings and rest for believers um, even though trial may come first. Just throwing that out there. It could come first. But ultimately, we are going to be blessed for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. So we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 1 next week with just one of us. Um, and until then, stay strong, be vigilant, remain faithful. Al, you want to pray us out of here? Revelation is kind of a perplexing book. Father. And I thank you that uh, there are mysterious elements in it. There are pieces that we'll never understand totally. And that's okay, because we understand the basics. We know who's in charge of history. We know how history is going to come out. And we know that our, our future blessedness is dependent upon our present faithfulness. That we're going to be blessed in the future because we're faithful to Jesus Christ now and into the future. So regardless of what circumstances we face, I thank you that we can look forward to seeing you at work even though sometimes we just won't actually understand what you're up to. So help us, Father, to learn how to trust. Thank you for helping us do that, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.